exam coming up, not today, fortunately, right? Uh, but we do have an exam next time. So that will be exam three covering the last six chapters. And what we're going to do today is I'm just going to go on and get this week's worth of material done. We'll be finishing chapter 23 and getting into chapter 24, which are what we're supposed to be covering this week. And then next time will be, as with the previous ones, exam and lab. So there'll be no other lecture uh, next time. So exam will cover these, uh, these three uh, units, chapters 17 through 19 as one unit, chapters 20 and 21, and then chapter 22 as a single unit. So again, when you're studying, that's a third of your questions, that's a third of your questions, that's a third of your questions. So don't overemphasize the first three chapters as compared to the last one uh, because there is a lot more material to go over in, in this one, 17, 18, and 19 kind of all tie together giving us the basic properties of stars. If you have not already, make sure you do take a look at the review quizzes which are available through 8.30 on uh, Wednesday, 8.30 a.m. so that you can take those. Again, they're the same test banks I use for the review quizzes as will be used to make up the exam. And don't forget to print out your key points sheets. Um, I don't have the ones for the current unit ready. These ones are ready for this exam, but for exam four, they're not ready yet. I'll have those up either the end of this week or the beginning of next week as we really start to get into that. I figure most people are going to be more concentrating on the exam right now, so I'm not, I'll have the concentrate on material that will help you with that at this point. Uh, the thing I'm, only thing I'm looking for today is your third time I'm asking you to, third and last time I'm asking you to submit your solar observations before the project is due. So all I need is a copy of your data sheet, photograph it and stick that copy up, that, up on D2L. If you've already made a copy, you can hand me one after class. I'll be happy to take a look at those and give you some credit for, uh, for making it. For credit, I'm, I'm looking for one new successful observation and hopefully you weren't waiting for today to do it because it doesn't look too, too promising out there right now. So I'm, again, I'm looking for just one more there though. And then finally, article review three will be due next week. And I think I've already mentioned it, but I want to make sure because I don't want to confuse anybody. If you've done the first two, you're happy with your two grades. You don't have to do the third one. If you want to try to improve one of your grades, you can because I'll take your two highest grades. So depending on what your lowest grade was, honestly, if you got like a 44 or 45 as your lowest grade on one, it's probably not worth your time to do the work, to write it up and get that done for the hope of getting a few more points. It's up to you. You have to decide what you think is going to help you more. If you missed one of the first two, definitely do it because you're dropping a zero then. Once I get those and grade them, then I will uh, drop your lowest grade. So right now if you skip the first one or skip the second one because you were busy at the time, it's a zero which is pulling your grade down. Once I get the third one in, I'll then drop one, take your two highest grades will be what count towards that portion of your grade. Uh, the other thing that's not up there was homework three, which was due last week. Um, the answers have not been posted yet. They will be up there tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock. So if you were submitting it late or you haven't submitted it yet, if you want it for a small amount of partial credit at this point, if you haven't submitted it, get it up there before 6 o'clock. It won't be available for submission after 6 o'clock tomorrow and the answer key will be available if you want to go back and review those so you have those to study uh, tomorrow, tomorrow evening for the exam if you, if you like. So you'll have that chance to be able to, to look at the answers to the questions for homework three. All right, questions? 
12, 13. That's it. Okay. No, no, no. Alrighty. Well, let's go ahead and get started with our picture. Um, I should say, for, for the exam, pictures go through last week. So I'm not going to count this week so I could start getting the questions made up uh, and get things printed out. So this one would be for exam, part of exam four uh, if I choose this one. This is actually called the California Nebula, also known as NGC 1499. NGC is just the catalog designation for the new general catalog which was done about 150-ish years ago to catalog things that were not individual stars. So in the NGC catalog, there are nebulae like this, there are galaxies, there are star clusters. So anything that was not just an individual star. This one is an example of what we call an emission nebula, which is some pl a place, a cloud of gas that's actually being heated up and excited by a hot star. So a hot star emits a lot of ultraviolet radiation. That ultraviolet radiation ionizes the hydrogen gas, strips that electron off of it, and when it recombines, it will give off this reddish glow. That red glow is associated with hydrogen emission. So when we see an emission nebula, it can apply to any element, but don't forget 90% of the atoms out there in the universe are hydrogen. So most, most of what you're going to see in anything that we look at, whether it be a star or a galaxy or a nebula, is going to be hydrogen atoms. So that's why these have a distinct red glow, not just because hydrogen is special, other than that it's, it makes up so much of the universe. Uh, you could get other colors though. You can actually look at this for other wavelengths and you could find you know, emission due to oxygen or emission due to carbon that would show up in some of these nebulae as well. Uh, just uh, hydrogen being so much more dominant overwhelms them because there's so much more of the hydrogen gas. Uh, they're associated with regions of star formation. So typically when stars form, the hot stars form, the form first and then they illuminate the leftover material. So this is kind of the leftovers, material that was left over from the star forming era of, that, of this region. So the hot stars, maybe this one right here, is actually what's providing all of the energy to illuminate this. Once those stars are gone, the gas disappears. It's still there. But we can't see it anymore. You need those hot stars to be able to ionize this. Our sun would not be hot enough. In fact, the vast majority of stars in the universe would not be hot enough to do this. It's only the very hot stars, those really bright, uh, hot main sequence stars that only live a couple million years. So it's a relatively short-lived phase in uh, the life of a nebula that we can actually see it. The gas would still be there afterwards, but it would become invisible if it's not being excited by one of those stars. All right, questions? Okay, well, we are heading back to, as I believe we started on chapter 23 last time. And am I correct that we got through pretty much all of the low mass stars? That's what I was remembering. About where we finished up. So, talking, oops, actually start this as a slideshow, just kind of review a little bit what we talked about with that. So, I'll come back to this one just as a start, go through the summary, and then we'll pick up with the high mass stars. Professor? Yeah? The one that we left out on is the fate of a star. The fate of a star? Yeah, that's the last one. Did I go to the fate of the high mass stars? I'd have to see. What did I? 
we did start. Well, we did start high mass stars then. Okay. Well, let me go back and let's go ahead and go, let me go start and start with high mass star. I'm going to start the, start this section just to go through it all at once, instead of what we covered last time and covering it again. So it looks like we were a little further. Must have been right about to there. Okay. Well, let me go ahead and just review this just for con- continuity. So we'll go ahead and start with this, and then we'll pick up, uh, catch up to that section, just kind of as a review as to what was happening. But I won't go back to low mass stars then. So high mass stars. What is happening with these? is that you're getting more layers built up. There's more mass, therefore higher temperature. Something like our sun fuses hydrogen to helium now. It'll eventually be able to fuse helium to carbon. It won't get hot enough to fuse carbon into anything heavier. If you have more mass, when you get to these stars that are 10 and 20 and 50 times the mass of the sun, You've got more material pushing down, heating them up inside, and they'll be able to fuse things like carbon into oxygen. They'll be able to fuse things like magnesium and neon, and even silicon and sulfur. They'll eventually work their way up to iron. Iron is the most stable, tightly bound element in the periodic table. And what that means is that you can't get any energy from fusing iron. This is the star that's in trouble. For our sun, it will eventually reach a stability. It will become that white dwarf star. And the core will remain stable. It will have something that will hold it up. These are the stars that are in trouble because when you build up a core of iron, there's no energy source. But you still have all this material pushing down on it. And that's where this star, again, gets into trouble. We had the electron or degenerate pressures that could keep things from collapsing. First it would be degenerate electrons. You couldn't push the electrons any closer together. If you finally get something massive enough, you can squeeze the electrons into the nucleus and make neutrons. Electrons and protons combining together to form neutrons. Eventually here, even that cannot keep the core from collapsing. And this is again where the star is in trouble and where it's going to blow up as a supernova. So what would happen, again, the core quickly collapses from something the size of the Earth. It's already contracted down that small, but it's about the size of the Earth, to something only a few kilometers, something city-sized. 20 kilometers, about 10, 12 miles in size, 12 miles across. If there's enough material there, those neutrons might be able to support it. If there's not, a, not too much material, the neutrons will be able to support it. So it'll reach a new stability. The electrons couldn't hold it up. It collapses inward. But we, now we have another, a stronger force. And the thing is that just like two electrons can't occupy the same state and same space at the same time, they'll force against each, push a force against each other, neutrons are the same way. If you try to get neutrons too close together, they will actually support themselves. There will be a pressure supported by the neutrons. So the pro- it will be now neutron degenerate pressure that is supporting the core and keeping it from collapsing further. This is what we call, based on what it's made up of, a neutron star. It's essentially made up of just neutrons. That's it. All you've taken, you've taken all the material you had, all the different atoms, you've crushed the electrons into the core. So you got rid of all the space in between the atoms. You've taken something that was the mass of the sun, and you compressed it down to the size of a city. 
That's how much empty space there is within an atom. You can take things that are you know, Earth-sized with the mass of the sun and compress them down to just a few miles across. Just by getting rid of the empty space. All the matter that was there is still there. We're not changing the mass. However much mass was there is still there. Maybe it's the mass, a solar mass or a couple solar masses. It's all still present. But it's now become a neutron star. So it collapsed down. All of a sudden this pressure stops it. So it's collapsing down and all of a sudden it stops. Well, you still have all this infalling material right, from further out. As it collapses down, it then rebounds outward. And that's what will cause the explosion that we call a supernova. So as this material plummets down into the neutron, onto the new neutron core that just formed, you have a shock wave that will form. So it crashes down, it's all imploding, and then it explodes back outward with massive force. I mean, much more massive than any kind of explosion we can begin to imagine here on Earth. Set off every nuclear weapon that we have all at once, and it wouldn't even be a fraction of a percent of what a supernova does. So, in terms of what we can, what we have here, this is you know completely more, uh, much much more power. It'll disrupt those outer layers, spending them out into space. And this is an example of a supernova, but a specific type that we call a type 2. We'll talk about type 1 uh, supernovae uh, later on. But type 2 supernova is one example of a supernova explosion. It is the end state of a massive star. And then this is where I apparently had finished up. So the ultimate fate of a star. Where are we going to end up? What an object is going to become depends on how much matter makes it up. If you have very little matter, something like the Earth, leave the Earth alone, just sit here, it'll remain stable forever. It's a very small mass, nothing will happen. We've got to ignore the fact that yes, the Sun will engulf us and will become part of the Sun. But if you just had the Earth-like thing sitting out there in space, it's nice, it's stable, it's just going to sit there. And nothing else will happen to it. So if you have a very low mass, less than, what did I have, about .01, one one hundredth the mass of the sun, it becomes a planet. If you get a little bit larger than that, up to about .08 times the mass of the sun, you're beyond a planet. This is what we call a brown dwarf star. If you recall, the difference was that a brown dwarf could actually fuse deuterium, heavy hydrogen. It actually had enough enough mass to be able to do some nuclear fusion. It couldn't fuse hydrogen, didn't get hot enough for that, but it was able to do a little bit of fusion, produce a little bit of energy, and that made our distinction between what we call a planet, something like Jupiter, and a brown dwarf star, which is kind of an intermediate stage. It's not quite a planet, it's too big to be a planet, but it's too small to be a star. Vast majority of stars, anything between that .08 and about 10 solar masses, will become a white dwarf. That takes care of about 99.9% of the stars that will ever form. Vast majority of them will become white dwarfs. They'll expel a lot of material out and will become that very compact Earth-sized object that is simply cooling off. The ones that are interesting are actually going to form in the region of 10 solar masses or more. 
This is when there's a lot, too much material behind for a white dwarf to form. Remember, a white dwarf could only be 1.4 times the mass of our sun. If you have more than that, put one extra atom on it, you broke the camel's back, boom, it collapses down. It can't have any more mass in that. That's the most mass that a white dwarf is able to support, that its electron's pressure is able to hold up against. So if you get more mass than that, you can form one of two things. You can form a neutron star, which we'll talk about a little bit here. Or you can form a black hole that we'll talk about in the next chapter coming up. So these are sort of the states. What can you form? It really depends on the mass. For the most part, again, most stars are going to end up as a white dwarf. star like our sun, uh, almost every other star that you see. It's the very rare ones that actually become a supernova. So what are some of the effects of these? Well, this is where all the elements come from. In fact, all the elements that we see that we have here on Earth, things like gold, silver, lead, uranium, anything heavier than iron, Iron's element 26 in the periodic table, so everything, we go up to 92 for uranium. Everything else beyond iron is stuff that has to be formed. That's the, iron is the ma- most massive that we can form within a star. So in order to form anything heavier, it requires a supernova explosion. So anything heavier than that in your body, other elements that, you, that are part of your body, were part of a supernova explosion at some point in the past. That's how they had to get them out. How else do we get them out into the universe? That explosion throws out those, throws out the outer layers. It creates heavier elements, but it also expels them out into a super, out into the interstellar medium. Going back, right? Interstellar medium is just that material between the stars. So now we're throwing it. Now that which was originally hydrogen and helium, now we're throwing all these heavier elements into it. They're still a tiny fraction, but instead of being none, as they would have been very early after the Big Bang, now there are starting to get some small amounts of heavier elements to be able to make future generations of stars. So the next generation of stars forms from material that's now been enriched. It has more things like iron that normally would be trapped inside a star that gets expe- now can get expelled back out into the universe. It has things like you know, lead, uranium, gold, silver, anything, anything higher up the periodic table. So that's how we get, them, get those materials out into the universe. Because you can imagine, you're, you're forming all this hydrogen into helium in a star, it's trapped in the core. You've got to get it back out. Then you can form helium into carbon. It's still trapped within that star. We need these supernova explosions to be able to expel that material back out. So in terms of understanding supernovae, you know, you've been there. Right? Iron in your blood was expelled out in a supernova explosion billions of years ago. So you have direct experience of a supernova explosion. You've been there. It's, yes, I know, you can't remember it because it's just pieces of atoms that eventually made you up. But if you think about it, that's where most of the material, anything heavier, maybe not carbon, maybe not oxygen, those could come out in planetary nebula. But things like iron, other heavier metals within your body, are all formed in supernova explosions. So most of the material here on Earth, right? you've got different metals, you've got all sorts of stuff in your phones, in other metallic things, they all came out in these supernova explosions. 
So they're important for having life here on Earth. We wouldn't be here if supernovae, if stars didn't do this. If stars just stayed stars, formed all those heavier elements, and left them locked in their cores, we wouldn't be here. Right? There'd be no iron for our blood, there'd be no copper, there'd be no aluminum, there'd be no uh, silicon, all those heavier elements. We have to get those out into the universe. But a supernova could also be dangerous. In fact, a supernova, if it occurred within about 50 light years of the Earth, would wipe out life. That's how massive this explosion is. I mean, so I, I compare it to nuclear weapons, you know, set out a new, take, take a nuclear warhead out 50 light years away from the Earth and set it off, you're not even going to notice it. Might be devastating if it happens here, obviously, but if you do that that far away, you wouldn't even notice it. Within 50 light years, that would wipe out life on Earth. We're safe. There aren't any stars within that distance that are, that are possible to go supernova. Within 100 light years, it might not wipe out all life, but it could cause the radiation levels will be so intense, even at 100 light years. You think about how many trillions and trillions of miles away that is. It would still be enough to cause massive extinctions due to the radiation levels. We're still safe. There aren't any stars that close, so we're okay. We're not going to be wiped out because a star goes supernova. Uh, there are stars further away. They could cause some damage, things that are a few hundred, but the further away it gets, the more diluted its energy is. So it's going to cause less and less damage, and so we're, we're, we're safe. But just something going off that close, and we have to use that, we have to think about that. We're going to come back to talk about life in our last chapter, you know, wh where life could be in the universe. Areas like the center of our galaxy are probably not likely areas for life. Because you would have lots of stars that could go supernova within a short distance. And if that happens, you know, life that was forming would be, could be wiped out very easily. So areas that are denser, of st star, denser in terms of number of stars would not be very likely areas to look for life. So we wouldn't want to look close to the center of our galaxy. Close to the center of massive clusters of stars would not be the best place to look. So we need the supernovae. They give us the heavier elements. Uh, we also you know, don't want them too close. So, uh, just to talk about a few supernovae that we've seen, in fact the last couple of them. Uh, these are the last, pretty much the last four that have been relatively easily visible from the Earth. Uh, supernova of 1006, 1054. That doesn't belong there. Okay, ignore my comments under supernova 1054. Those do not belong there. I'll have to go check that one. Uh, those are good. That's good. And these are fine. Okay. So, yeah, don't, don't write what I have there for 1054. That's, that's incorrect. That applies to a different slide. Uh, but ten, so 1006 and 1054 supernovae were, were noticed. Again, these would have been further away. They're not things that would have damaged the Earth. As I said, if they were within 50 or 100 years, light years of the Earth, that would have wiped out life. Or at least caused significant damage. But supernova the, in 1006 is actually, we have re recorded uh, information from it where it was seen in the sky. So we're able to see that in the sky and people noticed that a new star appeared. That's how it got its name as a nova meant new star. Supernova was a really bright new star. And some of these, these first couple, would be visible during the day. I mean, they're that bright that they could overwhelm the sunlight. Okay, they're not going to be brighter than the sun, but they're going to be bright enough that they can actually be seen during the day. 
So some of these were actually visible during the day. And we can uh, look and find, look to the locations where uh, people back you know, a thousand years ago recorded the location of the star. The star's obviously gone. Right? Supernova long faded over a thousand years. But we can look and we can see a remnant of material expanding out into space. So this would be an example of the remnant seen at the location of the supernova that occurred in 1006. The supernova of 1054 would also, if we look there, we know where that was recorded in the constellation of Taurus. And when we look there right now, again, looking back close to 1,000 years, we see material. We see a big cloud of material there that is, if we measure it, expanding outward still. You can actually measure this, t- pictures taken now versus pictures taken decades ago. You can pick out little bits and pieces, different knots of material, and you can measure their expansion. You can trace it back and say that we know when this occurred because you can also, not only do we have the records as to an, as to an explosion occurring at that location, but we also have, you can measure the expansion, you can trace it backwards and it fits that you can trace it back to something that occurred close to a thousand years ago. The last two, Tycho supernova, one of the ones that Tycho measured. Remember Tycho way, way back? Tycho was the one who was the uh, naked eye observatory before the telescope observer. And he saw the supernova and one of the things he measured it was that it didn't have a parallax. Its position didn't shift. So he found that this supernova was actually out there in the stars. Big deal to us now, right? Who cares? We know that. But at the time, a supernova was a change in the heavens. Heavens didn't change. So people thought, well, that supernova really isn't part of the heavens. It's not a star. It's actually something in our atmosphere. Because then you could explain why it's changing, why it appears and disappears. It's actually something in the atmosphere. However, if that were the case, Tycho should have been able to measure parallax. Since he couldn't, he knew that this supernova had to be out there with the stars and that it was actually a change in the heavens. Kepler's supernova, a few years, a few decades later, in 1604, was the last one that has been seen in our galaxy. So Galileo and the telescope were a few years after that. So no supernova has occurred in our galaxy that we've been able to see since the invention of the telescope. So lots of supernovae have occurred. We've seen them in lots of other galaxies, but nothing within our own galaxy that we've been able to see. And it looks like you you could have gaps of hundreds of years. You can have some that happen to go off close to each other. It's all a matter of luck, timing as to when they're going to occur. At some point, there are some stars that we look at that we think, boy, this thing is ready to go supernova. But of course, astronomically speaking, ready to go supernova could mean next week. Might mean a, as equally might mean 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now. In terms of the timing as to when it gets to that level where it's building up that iron core. So we don't know exactly when that will happen. However, we did have a supernova that occurred nearby just a few decades ago. And that is the supernova known as 1987A. Supernova 1987A, the naming convention for supernova, uh, to name a supernova is the year it occurred, and then A, B, C, D for which one it was discovered. This was actually occurred in February of 1987, so it was the first supernova observed. Again, not within our galaxy, 
but anywhere in the universe, wherever we see it. So supernova 1887A would be the first one. Supernova 1987D would be the first, fourth supernova that was seen that year. So gives you an idea that they don't just occur all the time. We didn't see one until February. This one occurred in the Large Magellanic Cloud. Large Magellanic Cloud is a satellite galaxy of ours, about a hundred and some thousand light years away. So it's not within our galaxy, it's definitely outside of it, but it's very close. The Andromeda Galaxy, the other big close one, is about two and a half million light years away. This one's only a hundred thousand. So it's relatively close to us. And in fact, it was really important because this was the first time we were, ever, we were able to go back and look at records and find out what was there before. If we see a supernova in a distant galaxy, we can see it. But even if we have pictures of that galaxy, we can't see individual stars. We never would have been able to see the star that became a supernova. If we go back to pictures taken before February of 1987, and people were taking lots of uh, telescopic photos of the Large Magellanic Cloud, we could find out the star that was there. And this is one thing that confused astronomers, and still to some extent does, because we don't have enough information yet. But what we found is that, hey, we not only had we taken pictures of the star, we knew what kind of star it was, it had been classified, it had a spectral class associated with it. It was a supergiant star, which we did think was the type that would go supernova, but it was a blue star. And models had led to us to think that it would be a redder star that would go supernova. So it was confusing. You know, it's one of those things where it's, it really helps us because it's something new and not what we expected. And in many cases, that pushes science when you get the non-expected result. If it had been a red star, everybody would have said, oh yeah, our models are great and keep going on. But now this causes everybody to rethink what had happened there. So it was not the type of star that people had thought you know, back in the earlier 80s or before that, the type of star that would have gone supernova. We can still see that the image here is actually of that explosion taken a couple of decades later. The star would have been originally at the center and we can actually see a ring of material expanding outward. It's just beginning, right? This is a thousand years worth of expansion, material expanding outward. Right now we still just were very in, in very close to that star. But we can see that people are monitoring it and over decades and centuries we'll start to get an idea of what happens after the supernova. You know, right now with the Crab Nebula, it occurred in 1054. Telescope wasn't even invented until oh, 500, fi almost 500 years later. And actual measurements of this took hundreds of years after that. We saw it, it was detected probably in the 1700s-ish. But in order to really understand it, to make measurements of it, took even more powerful telescopes. So it was hundreds and hundreds of years after the explosion was seen. This one is really important to astronomers because it's one that we can study. And we saw when the explosion occurred back, what is it now, 30 years, a little over 30 years ago. And now we're still watching it expanding outward into space. So it's that chance to actually study a supernova over a period of time. All right, so finishing up here, when we get to a higher mass star, electron degeneracy, those electrons pushing together can support a white dwarf, about the size of the Earth, about the mass of the Sun. If you push it over 1.4 solar masses, then it can't. That is just the, that's, you know, that's its limit. Again, I think I used the, 
uh, symbolism of taking a desk or something and just stacking books on it. Eventually, you're going to put one book too many on it, and the desk will collapse. Right? For a nice solid desk, you're going to be putting lots of books on it. If you've got a rickety old table that's very wobbly and you start putting table books on it, it's going to collapse a lot easier. But eventually, no matter what it is, it's going to collapse. And that's the limit for what this can hold, is 1.4 times the, so the mass of the sun. If that happens, it collapses down. The electrons get pushed into the nucleus, combine with protons and form neutrons, giving us a neutron star. That's what will be formed. And the outer layers will then be expelled outward. So inner layers collapse down, rebound out, everything, all the other material it gets expelled out into space and gives us what we know as a supernova. We've seen a number of them in the last thousand years or so, but nothing since the advent of the telescope. So nearest one is, again, as we talked about, 1987A, and that was a very important one because we could go back and look at pictures before, find out what star was at that last location, find out now that it's gone, and actually see that remnant left behind. So it's starting to form a remnant that may, you know, thousand years from now look something like the Crab Nebula or one of these other uh, remnants. All right. Questions? All right, so what happens afterward? So what's left behind? We went through the, I talked a little bit about the supernova explosion itself. I showed you the Crab Nebula here. But it leaves a remnant, but that's a very short period of time. Astronomically speaking, right? This one's been around for a thousand years. But if you can come back in tens of thousands or a hundred thousand years, it's expanding, it's losing energy, it's fading, it will disappear. So it'll slowly dissipate. All that enriched material then becomes part of the interstellar medium to form the next generation of stars. But the core is still left behind and the core remains behind. And that we can still detect. And it can be one of two things in a supernova. It's not going to be a white dwarf. That's a star like the sun, a little more massive or anything less massive. But we can have one of two things. And we're going to look at the neutron stars here right now as one possibility. And the other possibility being a black hole. So neutron stars were predicted but had never been detected. And it's, it's hard to detect them. They're massive. The A couple times the mass of the sun, maybe two, one and a half, two times the mass of the sun. But they're tiny. They're only the size of a city. So you can imagine no matter where you put this little thing, it's going to be almost impossible to detect. Unless it's right here close to the Earth. And we know there's none close to the Earth because we're still here. And if one had formed, even you know, a billion years ago, it would have wiped out life. We'd be gone. You know, we wouldn't be here now today to discuss it. So we know that there aren't any nearby, so they've got to be you know, hundreds or thousands of light years away, and they're going to be really difficult to detect. However, what we found back in 1967, um, a research, actually Jocelyn Bell, a research student, was studying radio sources and found a pulsation that occurred. So she was studying these with her advisor, and she had found that there was this very regular emission that occurred. And in fact, extremely precise. So it looks here, you could measure it, it's about every little over a second. But what was found over time is that if you measured these, 
it wasn't just, you know, well, 1.2 seconds, one point. It was one point, what's the number? 33728 seconds. So you're talking things that are precise down to a millisecond consistently. And that was something very interesting because how could anything that we know of, and in fact no star could possibly pulsate with a period of just a fraction of a second. If it was trying to do that or pulsate, that rapid pulsation would rip it apart. We do get some pulsations that occur. They take days, not seconds. Right? We get some stars, Cepheids, variables that pulsate. They get bigger, they get smaller. They can do that with periods of maybe a day or two or maybe months. It can happen, but if they tried to do it in seconds, they wouldn't be able to do it regularly for this much time. Bless you. They would tear themselves apart. So you know, what kind of thing could create such short pulses? And one of the first things that was thought of as a possibility was that it was an artificial source. In fact, they were you know, kind of jokingly named LGM-1 for little green men. Because we could send out a signal that was this precise. We could send out pulses out in space. So maybe were they detecting some kind of extraterrestrial signal? And I said, jokingly named, I don't think that they were seriously considering that, that it was a signal from, from there. They were still looking at you know, natural phenomena that might be able to do this. But it's hard to come up with anything because the faster something varies, the smaller it has to be. So something that's varying with a period of seconds has to be incredibly tiny. And what was figured out is that, you know, and it can't be an ordinary star. An ordinary star would not be able to spin that fast or change that quickly without tearing itself apart. So this thing, it turns out it's actually a rotating star. If we tried to rotate something every second, you could spin a ball every second, it would do it. Try imagining the Earth spinning once a second. Sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset, over and over real quick. The Earth wouldn't last. It would rip itself apart. The centrifugal forces would tear it apart if we tried to spin the Earth once a second. If we tried to spin the Sun once a second, it would rip itself apart. It has to be something extremely strong and solid. So as we started to find more of them, we actually found things that were spinning even faster. The Crab Nebula. There's actually one of these objects here, located within this, that spins not once a second, but 30 times a second. So not only is it tough to spin something that fast, but now you're spinning it not just every second and a half, second and a third, you're spinning it 30 times every second. Nothing that we knew of, nothing that we had ever observed before could possibly spin this fast. However, we did know theoretically of an object that could, that had never been detected before, and that was a neutron star. So that compact core of a star, something that is compressed down to the size of the city, it's extremely dense, it's small, but it's also extremely dense and has enough gravity that it can hold itself together even if it's spinning many times a second. So this was the first example of what we call a pulsar because it emitted pulses of radiation. So it emitted a pulse, 1.33728 seconds later, it emitted another pulse, and then another pulse, and then another pulse. So it's an example of what we would call a pulsar left behind.
So this is an example of the model, you know, how does this pulsar work? And what happens is when the star collapses down to form a neutron star, this would be an artist's conception of what we'd see here, the neutron star would be down there. Again, that's something the size of a city. As it collapses down, the magnetic field that was all spread out, as it collapses, the magnetic field intensifies. So as you make it smaller and smaller and smaller, the magnetic field collapses down with it and gets stronger, gets more and more intense. Those magnetic field lines get closer and closer together. So as it intensifies, you end up with really strong magnetic fields here that contain particles from escaping. So nothing can escape here. These magnetic field lines, if you remember we looked at this a little bit with the Earth. If you have particles from the Sun coming into the Earth, they come around the magnetic field into where it's weakest, where it goes into the poles. If you try to come across here, it doesn't work. And that's even with the Earth's relatively weak magnetic field. If you intensify this, it's almost impossible for particles to escape except along the axis. That's the place where the, part where the magnetic field lines come in. So it allows particles to beam out across the axes. So if you happen to be in the right place to see that beam of particles, you can imagine this is rotating. So it rotates, say it's going straight up and down. This beam will rotate in a little cone. It'll point this way, then it'll go around, and it'll point out that way, and it'll go back around again and again and again. If you happen to be in the direction of that beam, you'll get a pulse when it passes by your location. It's called the lighthouse model. You can imagine if a lighthouse comes by, a big bright beam, if it sweeps right across you, you get blinded for a second because you've got this big bright beam of light coming towards you. If that lighthouse is instead sending lights like this, you might see some light out in the distance, but it's not going to be the blinding light when it comes pointing right at you. So in order for a pulsar to be visible, this beam has to end up pointing towards Earth at some point during its rotation. If it does that, then we will see, see it as a pulsar. Then we will be able to make measurements of something like this. We'll be able to see those pulses coming in the radio. If it's a strong enough, young enough pulsar, we can actually get pulses in the visible. We can actually see the pulsar in the Crab Nebula actually pulsates visibly. We can see it on, off. Essentially it turns on and off. It's beaming towards us, we see the light. Then as it moves away around in its little uh, turn here, as it goes, if Earth is out here, we see a pulse of light. As it goes around, we see nothing. And then all of a sudden, a thirtieth of a second later, it pulses on again every time that beam passes the Earth. We would get that pulsation, which is really just this beam happening to pass the Earth. Now if we were at some other location, if we were out down here someplace, we wouldn't be able to see it. That beam would never cross the Earth. We wouldn't be able to see those pulses. Doesn't mean it's not there, but you have to be in the right location to see a pulsar. So other astronomers, you know, some distant alien astronomers sitting on another planet might not see this as a pulsar, might not see something like the Crab Nebula, oops, there it is, as a pulsar, but might see other ones that we don't see. It's just a matter of where you happen to be located. It's not that we're anything special. We don't get to see every pulsar and other people don't see them. If there are a hundred in the galaxy nearby, you know, maybe 10, 15 of them happen to pulse towards the Earth. The other 70, 80, whatever, what, 80 or 90, don't. So it's just a matter of where they happen to occur. 
So reasons you may not see the pulsar is that it's invisible. If their beams never point in our direction, we're not going to be able to see them. It has to be pointing in our direction. So how can we test this? If we're making a model, how can we go about testing it? What is the evidence for this? Well, we start measuring masses. We know, is, is a pulsar a neutron star? Are they really one and the same? Well, if that's the case, it should be the mass of a star. A couple times the mass of our sun is what we predict for neutron stars. So can we test this? Well, we can make, measure the, the pulsars of the masses. The masses of the pulsars. How massive are they? And we find out when we can make the measurements, we found out that they're in the correct range. They're maybe one and a half, two, two and a half times the mass of the sun. That's important because they fit the model. If, they were, if we were finding things that were five and six times the mass of our sun, something would be wrong. Those neutrons have a limit as well. It's about three times the mass of the sun. As to which, you know, you break again. You put one too many neutron there and it collapses further. So a pulsar can only exist in that relatively narrow range, about one and a half to three times the mass of the sun. That's where we find them occurring. So that's important. We can also see the beams of material energizing the nebula. Why is the nebula glowing so much? Where is all the energy coming from? I mean, it was this massive explosion, but it was a thousand years ago. The spinning beams, whether we see them or not, are still traveling through that nebula and can excite the material, causing it to glow. Where is the energy coming from? Well, it's coming from the rotation of the neutron star. That extremely fast rotation is what's giving all the energy to the pulsar. Over time, it slows down. Right? Anything spinning, now you start something spinning here on Earth, it'll start spinning and it will slowly slow down because of different frictional forces. The pulsar will do the same thing. Something that's spinning 30 times a second right now, the crab pulsar, in 100 years might be spinning only 25 times a second. Still really fast, but it's slowing down. And over hundreds and thousands of years and tens of thousands of years, you'll, sl you'll slow it down more and more until you get to the point where it's spinning once a second, once every two seconds, and eventually it's just not enough energy any longer for it to be able to be seen. So, you know, what is the, what is the evidence for this? There is some good evidence because the masses are correct, the pulsar beams are creating the amount of energy that we need, and if we take the energy loss of the pulsar, we can measure not only that it's going extremely rapidly and how fast precisely, we can actually measure it slowing down. Again, we're talking about, you know, milliseconds, micro, sorry, not milliseconds, microseconds, nanoseconds that it slows down, but we can measure that rate of decay. How much it's slowing down? Well, we can then figure out how much energy it's losing. And if that energy is being put into the nebula, we can measure Okay, it's losing so much energy. Where is that energy going? It's going into causing the nebula to glow. And that is slowly decaying. So we can measure that the amount of energy being produced is the amount by the pulsar, or being lost by the pulsar, is the amount of energy being gained and emitted by the nebula. So all good pieces of evidence. Everything is lining up and that we're, that we're trying to get very good evidence that these pulsars are neutron stars. And again, it's not the only thing they could be. If you tried to spin our sun, it wouldn't work. If you tried to spin a white dwarf star, it would rip itself apart. 
It's just not possible for it to spin, to spin that fast. How long they last? Maybe about 10 million years. Again, that's a long time for us. Astronomically, in terms of stellar lifetimes, it's relatively short. Eventually, they will slow down enough that the pulses cannot be seen. And they're also tend to lose. When they first form, you can see them at much higher energies. So if we look at the crab pulsar, I can see pulses in visible light. I can see pulses in radio waves. I can see pulses in x-rays. Over time, tens of thousands of years from now, eventually the x-rays will start to fade. The highest energy will lose those. Then we'll no longer see it pulsate in ultraviolet light. Eventually we'll no longer see it pulsate in visible light. Finally, as it gets to the end, we'll only see it pulsating in radio waves. So most of the pulsars, the first ones that have been discovered, and many of them only emit radio waves because they've slowed down enough that they're no longer able to give out those higher uh, energies. One of the problems is, again, detecting these. If you want to detect a neutron star, if it's, if it's not a pulsar, if it's slowed down enough that it's no longer pulsing, it's almost impossible to see. If it's not pointing in our direction, it's almost impossible to see. There have been very rare cases, and this is one example. You know, there's a nice picture of a neutron star, just a blob of light that has been detected. This was detected in 1992, about 400 light years away. Right, right in that limit, as you know, where it would have caused some significant damage to the Earth. Again, we don't know uh, where it is, where it's moving, where it went, how long ago it went supernova. But we, it is actually something we can detect. We can get measurements of how big it is. 14 kilometers fits into our size range, we think, for neutron stars. Its temperature is extremely hot, but not millions of degrees hot that it would have been if it had just exploded. And we don't see any remnant left around it, so we know that it might be millions of years old. And stars actually move too, so this, which, what is now only a few hundred light years away, could have been a lot further away if it, if it exploded as a supernova. You know, hundreds of thousands, millions of years ago may have been a lot further away from the Earth. So if this had gone off as a supernova at its location, you know, 400 light years, we'd, be in, we'd have been in trouble. But likely it was at a much different location when this actually occurred. All right, so finishing up a little bit on neutron stars and pulsars here. The neutron stars were finally detected as pulsars. Rapid bursts, first of radio emission, then we've been able to find some that are young enough that they've been able to give off other types of radiation. And that was you know, how we first detected them back in the 1960s. The lighthouse model explains how pulsars work. The energy is beamed. So it can only escape along the magnetic field axis. That's the only place. If that beam passes you, it's bright. So if it's spinning over here, you know, one side of the class gets, sees a pulsar. This side of the class doesn't. If it's over here spinning, this side of the class might see it beaming as a pulsar. And this side wouldn't see it. It's a matter of being in the right location where that beam will pass. And these neutron stars, the pulsars, will slowly lose energy. And eventually the pulses will stop, but the neutron star will remain. So it's again, it's one of those completely stable uh, dead objects. One of the things that, can be, that we can form at the end of the state of a star much more massive than our sun after a supernova explosion.
So there are likely lots of neutron stars sitting around. All right, the last thing we wanted to look at here was what happens, we looked at a supernova, what happens with these stars when they end up in a binary system? And we can get a couple of different things when they occur in a, in a binary. We've looked at white dwarfs, we've looked at neutron stars. Next chapter, in a little bit, we'll start talking about black holes. But what happens with one of these stars occurs in a binary system? We can get things like a nova, I'll talk about. We can get a supernova. I already talked about how you get one type of supernova. Remember that was type 2? Think of one as called type 2. You probably realize there's one called type 1. Uh, there's another type of supernova that can occur that only can occur in a binary system. So a massive star all by itself can never become a type 1 supernova, but a star in a binary system can. We can also get things like X-ray bursts and gamma-ray bursts that we'll look at. So all this occurs and all of these require a binary system. So let's look at a nova first. What happens with a nova is that you have a star, an ordinary star, maybe a, that's becoming a red giant, and you have a white dwarf star. So the white dwarf star would be down here at the center. Remember, that's much smaller, but really compact, really dense. Normally, when this star is far away, this normal star, nothing happens. They're just orbiting around each other. Remember how big they expand? This star that once was a little dot of a main sequence star gets bigger and bigger and bigger and engulfs a large part of our solar system in terms of size. It's possible that it gets large enough that its outer layers come close to the white dwarf star and, and it starts to tug material off of them. Because of the way it's rotating and spinning, the material doesn't just flow straight to the white dwarf, it flows into a disk around it. So material transfers and it kind of spirals in down towards the white dwarf. So what we call an accretion disk. An accretion disk is just material being accreted or gathered onto the white dwarf star. So it's not pulled straight onto the white dwarf. It doesn't just go blop and land up on the white dwarf. It actually slowly spirals in. As it does that, it releases a lot of energy. So we have energy of motion here being converted into friction as these particles move faster and faster and faster as they spiral down to the white dwarf. We can give off a lot of heat. And in fact, these give off things like x-rays in terms of their emissions. So we can actually see visible light, we can see x-rays, we can see ultraviolet light as the material spirals in. So not seeing the white dwarf itself, seeing the effects of its gravity as it pulls that material. Well, where that material ends up is on the surface of the white dwarf. It doesn't go there directly. It takes this little bit of a uh, spinning route to end up there. But eventually, you form a lot of hydrogen ends up on the surface of this white dwarf. Why hydrogen? 90% of the element, atoms in the universe are hydrogen. Stars are mostly made up of hydrogen, so hydrogen gas is the vast majority of the material that's being pulled from one star onto the white dwarf. As it does, it builds up there, it gets hotter and hotter. Eventually, you get it hot enough that nuclear fusion will begin, not at the center of a star, but on the surface of this white dwarf. So you'll have nuclear fusion reactions. All that hydrogen that's been building up might have taken it decades to do, maybe a century, to build up enough hydrogen. All of a sudden you get enough mass there 
hit the critical mass, it bursts out, and it explodes as a white as a nova. Now it's just the outer layers. It's not changing the star itself. The star, the soup, that white dwarf is incredibly stable. So you can have these nuclear reactions going off on its surface and not damage the star itself. So it'll burst, it'll get a hundred or a thousand times brighter than it was, and then it will fade. So it gets bright and then fades off again, and it can actually do this again. Because the white dwarf star itself was not damaged. You pulled in material, got enough of it there that it went off as a nova, and then it happens again. So if it happens regularly, it might happen every 50 or 100 years, we can see that nova do recur. The same system, the same star that went nova, we might have seen it going nova this year. We might know that maybe in 50 or 60 or 70 years, not precisely, not as precise as the pulses on the pulsars, but we know that eventually it will happen again. So we can know that roughly maybe 50 or 60 years later, we can expect a nova to occur there again. So it's not damaging the star because the reactions are all occurring just on the surface. So those outer layers get blown off into space and then get left and then expand out just like a remnant, you can get a remnant from a nova. The more interesting one and the one that we'll come back to again later is a white dwarf supernova. So a supernova can occur with a white dwarf as well. And the whole idea is it's exactly the same process. So you have a red giant star, you form a white dwarf, and then the other star becomes a red giant and starts transferring material to it. Same as a nova. But what if you have that white dwarf star right at the limit? What if it's just under that 1.4 solar mass limit? And you transfer enough material to push it over the limit. It goes from being stable, right? Electron degeneracy pressure is holding it up. You put one book too many on it. One atom too many. All of a sudden, the electrons, you know, we can hold it with this one. One more atom, guess what? We can't hold it anymore. And now that star collapses. So the star no longer supports itself against gravity. It crushes down and heats it up a little bit more. All of a sudden, nuclear fusion reactions begin. Well, big deal. They happened with the nova and the star was fine. This time, instead of just being the hydrogen on the surface, the whole thing is collapsing. And nuclear fusion begins throughout the entire star at once. So all of a sudden, you had this thing that was stable. You crush it down a little bit more. The temperature's already hot. You make them even hotter. And instead of just hydrogen fusion on the surface, you get carbon fusion. The white dwarf is mostly carbon. That occurs throughout the entire star. So it's sometimes called a carbon detonation supernova. We'll refer to it as a type 1, some of the type 1a supernova. There's some subtypes as well. But a type 1a supernova that is actually tears it apart. So a nova can recur again and again and again and again, dozens of times. A supernova like this can only occur once. This has actually ripped the white dwarf apart and there's nothing left behind. It tore the entire star that was there apart. We find that these are really important because the key to them, if a, if a massive star goes supernova, it might have been 20 times the mass of the sun, might have been 30 times the mass of the sun, might have been 50 times the mass of the sun. There could be some differences, some variations between them depending on how much mass they had. Every single one of these 
was a, was a white dwarf star at 1.4 times the mass of our sun. They're all the same. It was all exactly the same type of object blowing up. And that's going to be very important because we then know how bright they're going to get. They're all the same. It's the same thing. The one that goes off in our galaxy is exactly the same as something going off in another galaxy. And that allows us to know how bright they're going to get in terms of luminosity. And therefore, we can use our formulae to get the distance. So these are very big distance indicators. The other good thing about them is you can see them far away. You don't have to just see them in our galaxy or other nearby galaxies. You can see these things a good chunk of the way across the universe. 8, 10 billion light years away. Our universe is 14 billion light years old. Or 14 billion years old. About 14 billion light years is the largest distances you can see. You're looking back, you know, instead of just looking at distances nearby, you're looking at things that go back, you know, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way across the size of the universe. So let me summarize these two. Again, the two types of supernovae. We looked previously at type 2, which is a massive star. So that is a massive star at the end of its life. It built up iron in its core and ripped itself apart. It does leave a remnant behind. It will leave, for right now we've talked about neutron stars. We'll talk about black holes in a little bit. When this explodes, we see hydrogen. Lots of hydrogen there because the outer layers of that star were almost all hydrogen. All of that material that was changing was deep down in the core. The outer layers of the star remain essentially unchanged. So it was expelling lots of hydrogen out into space as well as other elements. And we do see strong hydrogen lines. A type 1 supernova was a white dwarf star that exploded that exceeded that mass limit. Nothing is left behind here. It, doesn't leave a, it will leave a remnant as in a you know, supernova remnant out there, but it will not leave anything behind. It will not leave a uh, neutron star or a black hole or anything else. This star completely ripped itself apart. There was a little bit of hydrogen involved, but when you look at the spectrum of these, the hydrogen is minuscule compared to everything else, and we do not see hydrogen lines. So one of the ways that astronomers can tell when they see a supernova go off in a nearby galaxy, first thing they do is take a spectrum of it. What type of supernova is it? If they see strong hydrogen lines, it's type 2. If they do not see strong hydrogen lines, it's type 1. And that's why, again, why these are so important. They are the same object. Not just are they a white dwarf star, but they're a white dwarf star with exactly the same mass. So essentially, they're all the same. It's what we call a standard candle, or I think your book uses standard bulb, that they all have the same brightness. And therefore, any apparent differences in brightness are just related to distance. Like you can imagine taking a bunch of light bulbs, so 100 watt light bulbs, put them out at different distances. Right? Nearby one's going to look a lot brighter than the one further away. If you know how much energy they're putting out, you can do a calculation and say, well, this one is only 2 meters away from me, so this one is 100 meters away from me. We can do the same thing with these supernovae and use them to determine distances. So we're going to come back and look at that uh, a little bit later when we talk about galaxies, but it is, is our key way of getting distances. Uh, out there in the universe. Now some of the other things that can happen, we do see bursts of x-rays, bursts of gamma rays that occur. So if you remember we talked about a nova. A nova was material from a star, hydrogen, creating on the surface of a white dwarf star, and it started to burn. Gave us a little burst of a nova. 
what would happen instead if instead of a white dwarf star that were a neutron star? No reason a neutron star can't be in a binary system. So you could have material from a regular star transported, accreted onto a neutron star just like you did with a white dwarf. No reason it would behave any differently. The difference is it's more, it might be more massive, it's going to be smaller, it's going to have a stronger gravity. So as it accretes this material, it's going to get really high temperatures. When you get enough material there, all of a sudden you're going to get a burst of x-rays. So an x-ray burst is really just a nova, but instead of the nova occurring on a white dwarf, it's on a neutron star. Much higher energy means instead of getting a burst of visible light, which we'd get for a nova, we get a burst of x-rays. They could recur again too. Again, that, that neutron star is really stable. And if you push it over its limit, there's no explosion. What can you do with a neutron star? If it compresses, compresses down you know, more than a few percent more, it becomes a black hole and nothing escapes. So you're not actually going to get, you're not going to get, you know, while you get a, um, something similar to a uh, nova, with a neutron star, you won't get an equivalent of a type 1 supernova occurring with a neutron star as you did with the white dwarf. So this can, again, we've detected many of these x-ray bursts, so these occur, they can occur on a regular basis as well. So you can get a burst of x-rays, you can build up that material again, and you can have another x-ray burst from the same, from the same system. So the neutron star still remains there. The other thing that you can get out of this is what we call a millisecond pulsar. Millisecond is one one thousandth of a second. There are actually pulsars that have been detected that are spinning with periods of milliseconds. So thousand of times, thousand times, hundreds, thousands of times a second. I mean, that's right at the limit. There is a limit to how fast anything can spin, and when we get those fast, that fast, that's about the limit of a neutron star. It could spin at most. You know, maybe a thousand times a second, maybe about a millisecond. Maybe have a period of a few milliseconds. That's as fast as it can possibly spin. Eventually, if you spin something rapidly enough, even something as dense and massive as a neutron star, it will tear itself apart. So if you get it spinning too fast, but this is actually the way you can kind of kick it up in speed. Because normally they, should only, they shouldn't even spin that fast even if they formed in a supernova. And if they just went supernova, last week, last month, we wouldn't see them spinning that quickly. But there are ways that if the material is coming in and you have a star spinning, in this case clockwise, and you have material coming in and kicking it clockwise, it's like pushing a kid on the swing, right? If you're pushing them just right, you get them going higher and higher and higher. If you try to push them back at the wrong time, you slow them down. If you're kicking this, giving this a little bit of burst of material, if it's spinning this way and you're giving it a push this way, every time that material spirals onto it, it kicks it, speeds it up a little bit. So the millisecond pulsars, the things that are pulsing that fast, did not form naturally that way. They're actually in binary systems and have been sped up by mass transferring and kicking them at the right spot. So that's an example of X-ray bursts. The other one that we can get is what we call gamma-ray bursts. Gamma-ray bursts have been known since the 1960s. They were actually detected by military satellites first. 1960s, you know, heights of the Cold War, what were we looking? We were looking for, you know, nuclear bursts. 
which would give off a big burst of gamma rays. Well, we were detecting them, but instead of coming from Earth, they were coming from space. So they were looking you know, for uh, test ban treaty violations, etc. And we've detected now thousands of these. One of the problems with detecting gamma rays, right, go way back to telescopes. Remember you had nice rounded mirrors that could bring light to a focus, to focus an image. There are ways to do that with x-rays if you kind of glance thing, do, do a glancing uh, skip off of the mirrors. You can get, focus x-rays. You can't focus gamma rays. Gamma rays are impossible to focus. So you can get a general idea that it's coming somewhere vaguely in that part of the, part of the sky. But it's really hard to be able to detect what is there optically. It has taken you know, decades to be able to do that. And the first one where we were able to do that was found to be a galaxy. So a galaxy that was not nearby, actually billions of light years away. So there was a gamma ray burst that the Hubble telescope here was able to detect. You know, can see where the bursting is over the course between June and July. That there is an object that was not there at one point that then appeared. So we were able to tie it in with an optical telescope. But it's something very hard to do. What we found with these is you know, what are these gamma ray bursts is that we've split them into two types. So there are long duration bursts and there are short duration bursts. Short duration is, two se- is less than two seconds. Long duration is more than two seconds. Generally there's a big gap in between. The short duration ones are really a lot less than a second. And there are other ones that are you know, much, much longer than a second. And they're believed to have two different causes. Both related to a, uh, one, the first one kind of related to a supernova. In that when they occur here, this is a collapse of a star. But it's lost all those outer layers. Those outer layers have been expelled out into space and it was just the core left behind. So when it formed iron, there wasn't as much material there. There wasn't a lot of hydrogen. It had already been previously expelled out into space. And that collapse and then that energy we're seeing. We're, We're not shielded by all of that other material around it and we get a burst of gamma rays from that massive explosion because that's what's formed. When we take those electrons and fuse them into the nucleus, into the protons in the nucleus, we form gamma rays. The energy is given off in gamma rays. Now most of the time we've got all those layers of the star around it and they absorb those gamma rays, re-emit them, so a lot of the energy ends up being emitted in the visible part of the spectrum. When we don't have all those outer layers, we essentially get this large burst of gamma rays. So that energy beamed to us in that explosion is a big burst of gamma rays. It's essentially a supernova, but a supernova with a star that lost all its outer layers before it finished collapsing. The others were the short duration bursts. These are again less than a couple of seconds, so just a real quick burst. You know, don't, don't blink or you miss the burst. These are believed to be caused by colliding neutron stars. So two neutron stars colliding together will form a black hole and maybe in that will actually give off this great burst of gamma rays right before the black hole forms. Um, the big evidence for this would be things like gravitational waves, sometimes we call a kilonova, uh, another type of nova that we'd see. That would be good examples of you know, possibilities for what we think these short-term bursts are. Gravitational waves, I'm going to talk about those a little more in the 
uh, next section, but essentially we're looking at two neutron stars moving really close together. And just as moving matter, moving uh, charged particles give off electromagnetic waves, anything with mass moving gives off gravitational waves. So as I walk back and forth, I'm giving off gravitational waves. Gravity is a really weak force compared to electromagnetic. So the amount of gravity waves I'm giving off by moving around are undetectable. Even things like the Earth moving or the Moon moving, such a small amount of uh, gravity moving relatively slow are not going to be detectable. When you have two spinning neutron stars getting close together, you've got really high mass and you've got them moving fast. We're getting to the edge here of what would be detectable in terms of gravitational waves. And being able to detect them is something important. This is what Einstein's theory of relativity predicts. Predicts that gravitational waves should exist. It's only been in the last couple of years, as we'll talk about at the end of the next chapter, when they've actually been detected. So gamma ray burst, two different things there, either colliding neutron stars for the short duration, or another type of supernova where the outer layers have been lost for the longer duration bursts. So finishing up this chapter, again, compact stars, we can, give, we can get all sorts of different things on them. We can get things like novae, we can get things like supernovae, we can get the X-ray burst and the gamma ray burst, depending on what's going on with these compact stars. The white dwarf star can become a nova or a supernova. The neutron stars can become sometimes the X-ray bursts as they're forming in terms of an uh, explosion or a gamma ray burster. All right, questions? We jump on to the weird objects or weirder objects. Alrighty, well, let's go ahead and look at chapter 24. Get a good start on this at least. If we don't finish it up, we'll finish it up as we get onto our galaxy next time, uh, next week. But this is going to be a, a titled general relativity, but we're going to be looking at black holes primarily, which are one of the predictions kind of of general relativity. First section I want to go through those before I actually start talking about black holes because general relativity is important for being able to understand you know, what's going on with a black hole. So what is general relativity? Right, everybody recognizes uh, Professor Einstein here who gave us general relativity back in 1916. It's been about 100 years now that general relativity has existed. It was a complete change to how we understood gravity. Prior to this, it was Isaac Newton. Force between two objects. Moon pulls on the Earth, Earth pulls on the Moon, the force between them. Moon wants to move in a straight line. It can't because there's a force, so it ends up moving in a circle around the Earth. And you can calculate how that works. And you can do that for all the planets and the Sun. You can calculate the gravitational force between the planets. And you can figure out how things move. That was what Newton said. And, and Newton's gravity works in almost every situation that we find. So it's wrong, but why do we still teach it? Because it works most of the time. You know, we went over, we gave you Newton's law of gravity, I gave you the equation. I'm not giving you, New I'm not giving you Einstein's uh, math. The math that we need for Einstein is well above, well above anything we'd need to do, we, we could do here. But in order to understand his field equations of general relativity, you know, Calculus doesn't begin it. You've got to go way beyond that in terms of the mathematics that are needed to be able to understand. But we can do some of it conceptually at least. He gave us 
a, one of the things he could not explain, one of the things that Newton could not explain was motions near a strong source of gravity. One of the things that he could not explain was the orbit of Mercury. His, his model worked. Newton's gravity could predict how Venus and Earth and Mars and all the planets further away from the Sun would move. Mercury was off. Tiny bit. Fractions of arc seconds, but things that were measurable and were consistently off from what, was, what the predictions were. So there was a problem. Actually, for a while there, people had thought that you know, maybe there's another planet in there closer, closer to the Sun than Mercury that was causing its orbit to deviate. Turns out that's not the case because what Einstein found is if you try to calculate Mercury's orbit using Einstein's gravity instead of Newton's, it works perfectly. He can explain Mercury's orbit perfectly. <coughs> so things near strong sources of gravity cannot be explained. And it also cannot explain motions at high speeds near the speed of light. Again, for the most part, that doesn't matter. How fast, how often do we travel close to the speed of light? Never. Right? We're never getting close to the speed of light. No matter how fast we're traveling, whether it be in you know, walking, in a vehicle, in an airplane, in a satellite, space station, a spacecraft heading out there, they're all tiny fractions of the speed of light. And for the most part, they're perfect. We can use Newton's laws, much simpler, to be able to explain those motions. But these were the, this was, this is, but when it gets to be the extreme cases, when we talk about particles, in an accelerator, moving at 90 or 95 percent of the speed of light, if you try to calculate what's going on with Newton's laws, everything breaks down. It doesn't work. Nothing ma- the experiments do not match the predictions of the theory. Einstein, so far, for 100 years, has been the best we have for explaining those. What he describes instead of gravity as being a force between two objects, is he defines it as a bending of space and time. Essentially what it means is that in terms of the motion, the Earth deforms the space around it. So the Earth and the Moon, there's no force between the Earth and the Moon under general relativity. The Earth with its mass deforms space and time around it and the Moon moves in the straightest line path it can possibly move in that deformed space. So matter deforms space and then the space tells the matter how it has to move around in that deformed space. So it's a different concept in terms of how we understand gravity. Normally we think of it as a force. Earth pulls on the sun, sun pulls on the earth. That's not how Einstein explains gravity. Einstein says sun bends the space around it and all the planets move around in, again, the closest they can to a straight line in that deformed space. Now his is based on, his uh, theory of general relativity is based on what we call the equivalence principle. And the equivalence principle uh, applies to two things. What we have is that it applies to objects and what he says that is that if you're in a sealed room there is no experiment that you can do to tell whether you are out in space, weightless, far away from any gravity, or if you're freely falling. There's no experiment that you can do. You're in a sealed room where you can't look out and no peeking looking out and seeing. So we seal up the room here. 
There's no way to tell the difference between those. If you're weightless out in space, it's exactly the same as being in free fall. If you drop an object, let go of an object, and you're out in space, it's just going to sit there. If you're in free fall in an elevator and you drop an object, free fall, which you don't want to do in an elevator because you've got to stop eventually when you hit the ground. But if you let go of the object, it would just float there for that fraction of a second before you smash against the bottom of the, uh, the elevator shaft. So that's what Einstein said. There's no difference between those two. There's also no difference between an object being accelerated and an object in a gravitational field. So if I take an object and drop it, we're in this room, we got no windows so we can't see outside. If I drop this, I mean Earth's gravity pulls it down. Because we know if we walk out there we're going to see a big gravitational field of the Earth. What Einstein says and his equivalence principle says is that if we were in a rocket accelerating in space, the same thing would happen. Right? In this case I would drop the object and what happens? We're accelerating upward so instead of this falling down, the ground would accelerate upward but the effect would be the same. No matter what experiment I do, I couldn't tell the difference between being in a gravitational field or being in an object that is constantly accelerating. It has to be accelerating, not just moving through space. You have to have the rockets on. And you have to be constantly accelerating upward. It would be like they talk about you know, forming an artificial gravity. If you're moving upward and accelerating upward in a rocket, that is the same as a gravitational field. So you can't tell the difference between those two. That's the basis of what we call the equivalence principle. That if you're in a sealed room, so again, you can't peek and look outside and say, oh yeah, we're in a rocket traveling through space, or no, I'm sitting here on the surface of the Earth. If you're in that sealed room, can't get out, there's no experiment that I can do. Any physical experiment that I do is going to give me the same results, whether I'm in a gravitational field or whether I'm accelerating through space. If I'm accelerating through space at 9.8 meters per second every second, getting going that much faster every second, I won't be able to tell the difference between that and sitting here on the Earth. That's the basis of Einstein's general relativity. So what is this kind of, what does this mean in terms of light? Well, in terms of throwing a ball back and forth, I've got, you know, two people. Hopefully there's you know, a nice big trampoline down there at the bottom for them so they don't just smash down. But as they throw the ball straight back and forth, they fall together. But when he throws the ball, the ball falls down due to gravity as she is falling. So but what we mean is that we can't really tell the difference between this and any other experiment. It doesn't matter whether we're in a gravitational field or we're out in space. You're going to see this net, net, net result is going to be the same thing. They're throwing the ball back and forth. If they were floating in space, you'd just be throwing the ball back and forth. As they fall, right? imagine that they can't see anything else going around them, the ball is still going to go back and forth, straight back and forth between them. But what does change is the path it actually follows. The path that it follows, when she lets go of it, it's here. When he catches it, he's down here, she's down here. It looks like it went straight, but it actually followed this curved path. And that has an impact for light how light is going to behave in a gravitational field. Under Isaac Newton, right, go back and give you the F equals G M1 M2 over R squared. Take the masses of the two objects, multiply them together. So if we take a photon of light with a mass of zero, gravitational force is you know, big zero, right? 
m time, whatever the mass of the object is, times zero gives you zero. It doesn't matter what the distance is. It doesn't matter what the gravitational constant is. The force is going to be zero. So the force between a light particle and any mass of object is going to be zero. Einstein looks at things differently. Einstein says because of the equivalence principle, you know, does light always travel in a straight line? Well, if, you, if you're here in the rocket, sitting here on Earth, as you shine your light, it goes straight across. However, if you were the same rocket accelerating through space, in the instant, that tiny bit of time, remember light doesn't travel instantly fast, so it takes some small fraction of a second for the light beam to go from here to here. If this rocket is accelerating, that means in space, the beam is going to hit a little bit lower. Remember, light travels really fast. It's not going to be a big difference, but Einstein says that it would travel a little, it would follow a little bit lower. It would essentially follow a curved path if it's accelerating through space. But the equivalence principle says that you can't tell the difference between whether it's traveling through space, accelerating, being accelerated by a rocket, in which case I hope it makes a little bit of sense that the, it will follow a slightly curved path. It'll hit this down below where it would have otherwise. Rockets moved up in the little bit of time, the billionth of a second it took the light to go from one wall to the other, the rocket moved up a bit and the, it will hit at a different spot. But Einstein says that you can't tell the difference between that or it's sitting here on Earth in a gravitational field. Therefore, gravity will cause light to bend as well. Einstein made this prediction back when he came up with general relativity. It says that light in a gravitational field will bend. And that is something, that's a big prediction that was made, and it was one of the first big tests of general relativity. One we knew, we talked about, I talked about Mercury's orbit. That was one way to be able to test general relativity. Was, hey, general relativity can explain Mercury's orbit. But it's even better when you can make a prediction that something should happen and then go out and test this. So how can we test the bending of light? Not a very easy thing to do. We need a strong source of gravity. The strongest source of gravity we have nearby is the sun. So we could look at stars near the sun. If we look at a star passing close to the limb of the sun, its light should get bent a little bit. And if we look at that same star six months later when the sun's nowhere near it, we shouldn't see it. We should see it at different positions in those two times. And that's what was found. Back in 1919 there was an eclipse expedition mounted to check this. To go look, well normally if we try to take a picture of stars near the sun, they kind of get blurred out, blotted out by the sun because it's overwhelmingly bright. But during an eclipse, sun is completely blocked, we can see the stars around it. And you could then make that measurement. Measure them at that point, measure those same stars six months later when the sun's nowhere near them, and we found that the prediction that general relativity gave us before anything like this had ever been detected matches with the observations that had been made. Oh, uh, let's see. All right. So, so space-time. What is this? How is the, how can light be bent by gravity? Well, Einstein gives us the idea of space-time. We're used to talking about space and time. In Einstein's theories that they're intermingled, time is just another dimension. So you can talk about dimensions of space, right? I can move left and right, I can move forward and back, I can move up and down a little bit. 
I can move through time. Now we're, we kind of got a little more flexibility in moving through space because I can move, I can move this way, I can move backwards, I can move this way, I can move backwards. In time, we're very limited. I can only move in one direction in time and only at one rate. But I can move forward in time at one second per second. Right? It's a different time now than it was an hour ago. So we are traveling through, so time travel is easy. If you only want to travel forward at one second per second, it's very easy. We're traveling through doing that all the time. But that's the whole idea is that when we look at things in terms of space-time, and this is uh, kind of condensed down so we can look at it in, because trying to imagine four dimensions is really hard on our heads. But talking about just one dimension of space and one dimension of time, this would be an example of you know, positioning. Where are you moving if you're just w- traveling east in a car? Where are you? So at this time, at a certain time, amount of time passing, you were at some distance away. So here you were traveling at some velocity. Here you stopped because you stayed the same distance away, but time continues to go. Time doesn't stop when you stop. Now you're taking a trip, you stop at a rest area for 10 or 15 minutes, get something to eat, etc. Well, you stop there and for that period of time, what is it, about 20 minutes or so there, you didn't move in distance. So Einstein puts everything together in what we call space-time. So they're just a different, it's just another one of the dimensions. We look at the universe as having three spatial dimensions, right? Left, right, forward, back, up, down. But we also have a time dimension. So if you really want to plot things out, you not only have to plot them out using the dimensions of space, but you also have to apply the time dimension as well. So the light will follow the shortest dimension it can in the deformed space-time. That's what a massive object is doing, is deforming space and time around it. So space and time is not nice and smooth as it would be further away. And this depends on the amount of mass. The more material you have, the more the distortion. So I I deform space around me a little bit. The Earth deforms space around it a lot more. The Sun deforms space around it even more. The more mass of the object, the more it's going to deform space and time around it. So, yes, I bend light a little bit as it comes around me. Minuscule, not even measurable. The Earth would do it a little bit more, still almost impossible to measure. The Sun still only bends it a little bit, but it's enough. So the more massive and the denser the object is, the more the distortion is going to be. And that's what happens is that the light is now moving not through a nice flat space, in which case it would move in nice straight lines and wouldn't be bent at all. But it's moving through a deformed space in time. And when it does that, when it moves through that deformed space in time, it follows a different path. So as an example here, now here's what the Earth does. Instead of trying to do three dimensions and time, which again, we can't wrap our heads around. We can do the mathematics. The mathematics can be done. We're not going to do it here. But we, we condense space to be down to just two dimensions. So we can imagine two dimensions getting deformed into a third dimension. Kind of hard to imagine three dimensions getting deformed into a fourth dimension. I, can't, I, can, I, can, I know the concept, but I can't wrap my head around how it actually works, how we deform that, third, that direction. But we can imagine a nice straight sheet here. Um, usually they'll use some kind of you know, rubber sheet that you can then deform very easily. And if you put something in it, it's going to deform the shape of that material. And now anything moving within that is going to 
follow a curved path. So if something comes close to the Earth, if it's far away from the Earth, what does it do? It just travels just like it normally would, according to Newton. If it comes close to the Earth, it gets bent around that a little bit and might actually change its direction. The closer it gets to the Earth, the bigger the deformation. So a very massive object will change the orbits, uh, change orbits, change motions a lot. A more massive object will change them a lot. A very low mass object will change them very little. So again, light passing by the sun, objects passing close to the earth, sorry, will change just a tiny bit. Passing close to the sun, it would be even more. Passing close to a black hole, which would be a dot of almost infinite density, would be even more. All right, so let me, where are we? I want to do one more thing and then I'll finish up general relativity and black holes next time because I'll go over the tests that we talked about uh, previously. But I'm going to end with one video clip that kind of shows a little bit about this. Uh, this is from a movie, uh, gosh, it's about a decade old now, uh, called Einstein and Eddington. I'm going to 